0: Chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. If you want to use one of the Bibles in the rack in the pew in front of you, please feel free to do so. It'll be page 828, where we're at this morning. Uh, One of the most enduring images that came out of the infamous terrorist attacks on September 11th, 2001, of many of the images, was a positive image. Uh, for me personally, it was one of the most profound and moving images of the whole scene. It was uh, about probably a third, if I remember right, of the members of Congress standing on the steps of the Capitol, shoulder to shoulder, singing God Bless America. Do you remember that? I was, I still get chills when I think about it, because here is a body, almost by definition, built to be in disagreement and divisive, Right? <laughs> got to represent all the different opinions out there. And they are known for their debate and their disagreements. And here they were, shoulder to shoulder. There were senators and there were congressmen and women. There were male members of Congress and female members of Congress. There were Republican members of Congress and Democrat members of Congress and independent members of Congress. There were light-skinned members of Congress and dark-skinned members of Congress. Like, for one glorious moment, those differences didn't cease to exist. They just ceased to matter. You know what I'm saying? They just all put them aside and said, you know what? We, at the end of the day, are an us. We're an us, and we're going to move forward into a painful and uncertain future together. And that moment of unity was powerful. International news media picked it up and called it one of the most enduring images of the whole crisis. It was powerful in part because unity is not only beautiful, it's also rare, And in Congress, it didn't last very long, did it? (laughs) We have two Sundays left in the series of messages we've been doing as a church on discipling. And we are going to pick that up next Sunday and finish it the one right after. right now today, our elders have thought and prayed and talked and decided that we're going to set this Sunday aside to acknowledge the fractious world in which we live and that we are all experiencing, sort of amped up on steroids here this last couple of years, to acknowledge that and to seek some wisdom from God's word. We're going to talk this morning about unity from the Bible, a topic that the Bible actually has a lot to say about. I was telling some people this morning, it's kind of a funny topic in churches in that like nobody really has a problem with it in concept. Everybody tends to be comfortable with the topic of unity, but if we're honest, uh, we don't talk a whole lot about it. And when we do, sometimes it's wielded like a club to sort of make people do certain things. It can be kind of weird. So for a topic nobody has a problem with, we don't often get excited talking about it in churches. The Bible has an awful lot to say about it. And so it behooves us to pay attention. Now, the full transparency here, at earlier this week when we had all decided as a group of elders we were going to do this, I was supportive of that. But to be honest, a part of me did not want to talk about this topic today. Um, I want to talk about making disciples, which is what we're about, right? This felt like a, a detour. Uh, it felt like a temporary suspending of what we should do. And honestly, like, like literally dozens of pastors I know, all around the Portland area, all up and down the I-5 corridor that I'm in regular contact with, I, too, have been feeling at times discouraged and frustrated and exhausted just dealing with the widely varying views on the divisive issues of our day. I saw those issues as a distraction from our real calling, right? a tool of Satan to keep Christians spending their personal, mental, and emotional energy on anything but helping other people find and follow Jesus, which is what we're all about. And I was partly right in that assessment. I was partly right. I think the part of that perspective that was right is that there is, brothers and sisters, a spiritual battle raging all around us. There always is. There is right now. And getting churches to divide over things that may be important but just aren't ultimate is a fantastic way to undermine Jesus' command to make disciples of all peoples. But, it was partly right, as I immersed myself in today's text this past several days, just desperate going to God's word for some wisdom That would help shape and give life to a topic that I was kind of exhausted over. I found God's Word up to the task. Immersing myself in this text that we're going to look at here for a moment, Mike read it for us earlier, completely refreshed my soul and shifted my perspective on this entire conversation. The perspective shift, God showed me that that while I was partly right, I was also partly wrong. The issue of unity is not just a distraction from the mission that he's given us to make disciples. Actually, this issue of unity in churches is essential. Carefully chosen word. It's not just important. It's essential to the task of making disciples. That's what the Bible says. That's not what I was thinking four or five days ago. I've come to realize that any church that takes Jesus' command to make disciples seriously will take its own unity seriously. So we're going to see from the Bible this morning. So I want to encourage you, if you haven't already, to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. I want to show us three things I saw from this text this week that shifted my perspective on how important an issue this is if we want to be a church that is going to help people find and follow Jesus. We're going to see that that church unity, first of all, preserves Jesus' work that he's already accomplished. Secondly, church unity requires Jesus' character, which none of us have left to ourselves. And lastly, we're going to see that church unity accomplishes Jesus' mission to make disciples. Let's look at this together. First of all, Verse 1, we're going to walk through this together and then I want to spend the last several minutes trying to apply some of what we see to the current issues of our day. First of all, church unity preserves Jesus' work. We see that right away in chapter 4, verse 1, the very first verse. I therefore, the Apostle Paul writing to the church in the ancient city of Ephesus, I'm a prisoner of the Lord. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, that word, therefore, right at the beginning, connects our passage with everything that came before it. We're jumping right into the middle of the book of Ephesians. He's laid some things out for three chapters before this, and he says, therefore, in light of everything I've said, do this. Live in a manner that is consistent with the calling that I've described. So, what is the calling that he's talking about? When he says walk, when the Bible tells us to, as Christians, walk or live in a manner that's worthy of your calling, what does that mean? What is the calling? Well, to get that answer, we can go back earlier in the book of Ephesians. Uh, chapter 2, for example, the first half talks so in such powerful terms about how Jesus, through his death and resurrection, unites sinners who are broken, who are cut off from God, reunites us with God. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God because he was rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even while we were dead in our trespasses he made us alive together with christ and then he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in christ so that for all eternity in the coming ages god would get the glory As a Christian, Jesus died to unite you with God. You are unified with God as your father only because of Jesus. And brothers and sisters, friends, if you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ this morning, the Bible's clear message is there is one and only one way to avoid eternal condemnation for your sin and experience God not as a judge, but a loving father. That's what he wants. He's made the way for that to happen. And that way is through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus we would love to talk with you about beginning a relationship with Christ and experiencing union with God, because that's what Jesus died and rose from the dead to accomplish. But there's more. There's more. Chapter 2 goes on, verses 11 through 22, to say not only did God uni- or Jesus unite us individually with God because of his work, but because of that, he's united us together into a family. Speaking primarily of the difference back in the first century between Jewish people, And Gentile people, which was part ethnic, part religious, deep lines across which people fracture and divide all the time, the Bible says that Jesus' death and resurrection like welds those two pieces together to become one new piece. And it closes beautifully saying that because of the work of Jesus, he has now, past tense, built us into and is continuing now, present tense, building us into the image There is a temple, a holy temple for God. That's what a church is. Like each individual member of the church are bricks interlocked together. We connect together. We are one together to continue to support and further Jesus' work of making disciples. So in short, the calling, Jesus died and rose again to unite us to his Father and to unite us to one another. So, live your life, this is what the Bible says, Christian, in a manner that supports and upholds and preserves that unifying work that Jesus has already done. Live in a manner that preserves Jesus' unifying work, which is interesting because that means that that this is not a call to create unity where it does not exist. I got news for you. You're not good enough to be up to that task. Neither am I. That's partly why unity, when that topic comes up, we can get a little bit jaded about it because you can see something like Congress on the steps of the Capitol and say, gosh, that's beautiful, but you just know it's not going to last, right? Like it doesn't matter how sincere all those people were and I'll even give them the credit of saying they were totally sincere in what they were doing at that moment. We just know we don't have it within us to maintain this kind of unity. This is not a call to be good people who unify. This is a call to say, Jesus Christ laid down his life and he's already created unity. Don't mess it up. (laughs) Preserve and promote the building, unifying work that Jesus has already accomplished. Which leads us to asking, like, what unity even is? One thing unity isn't, certainly, is everyone thinking the same thing on every topic. Because that just never happens, right? That just never happens. And the Bible's honest about that. Like, there's several passages in Scripture, Romans 14, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, great chapters for Christians to be pondering and meditating on these days. If it's been a while since you've read Romans 14 or 1 Corinthians 8, may I urge you to spend some time there. But among many points those chapters make is that there will be disagreements on lesser issues that Christians have. Unity is not everybody thinking the same way about everything, Unity is described beautifully in the Bible in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Unity in a church, according to the Bible, is when we are all standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That's the best one-sentence description of unity I can find anywhere. Notice two things about that briefly. Unity is solidarity solidarity is like it's togetherness it's the sense that we are an us we are an us we're family we belong to one another last week my wife amy and my son tommy and i went out to a movie it was a late showing there weren't very many people there but there were a few other people in the theater there was no solidarity we didn't know who those people were i didn't talk to any of them i didn't even look them in the eye it was dark i couldn't look them in the eye and i didn't care we all watched the movie, we all left. There's no solidarity, right? What a tragedy when people attend church with the same mindset. Come in, I see my thing, I leave. Maybe I talk to my friends, but I really have no awareness of anybody else around me. No, 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 no. We are in us. That's solidarity. And then secondly, it's not just that we're a family or we're, we're an us, it's that this is a team with a common purpose. We are going somewhere, and it takes all of us to get there. Common purpose means we're a team working to achieve a common goal. That goal is to help people find and follow Jesus. And so church unity means I come in with a sense of we are us and we are all moving together to lift Jesus up so that people can see him. That is our magnificent passion and obsession. Unity is a beautiful thing created by Jesus at great cost to himself and it is maintained by his followers at great cost to themselves. That leads us to our second point. Unity not only preserves Jesus' work, but unity in a church requires Jesus' character. It requires a change of heart within. Verses 2 and 3 of our text this morning. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love... Be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Jesus Christ himself is our model here. Elsewhere in the Bible it says, this is Romans chapter 15, verses 2 to 3, let each of us, again, addressed to a church, congregation like us, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but just as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. You know what the Bible is saying there? Jesus didn't seek to please himself. That is, his main decision making in in terms of how I'm going to conduct myself is not what makes the most sense to me and what benefits me. He laid down his life and took on great pain so that he could take on our punishment to pay the penalty for our sins, for God's glory, and for our good. He was putting others, his father first, his follower second, before himself. In other words, it's wonderful to say that Jesus' work built us into a unified community, but that work was costly. That work required Jesus to pay dearly, and he did. Willingly, as he sweats like drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane the night, literally hours before his crucifixion, and says, God, if there's any other way, please let me not do this. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. I will accept it. I will pay the cost. When I was younger, as a teenager, there was a popular t shirt running around Christian circles that had this wonderful little slogan on it. It was very simple. It just said, I am third. Three simple words. I am third, right? The idea was that I live for God first and then I live for other people. And if I have anything left over, I get to myself and what I need. Totally contrary to everything I experience as a human being. But that's the calling of God. And so the shirt said, I am third. That's the mindset I want to adopt. I was talking with my wife Amy about this She reminded me that there was another acronym that was popular around the same time, the acronym of joy, J-O-Y. Jesus, others, you. In that order. Live for him, then consider others. If I have anything left over, I'll try to take care of myself. That's a serving others-oriented heart that's motivated by the glory of God that I don't possess naturally and neither do you. The Bible says we need a heart transplant. We need the character of Jesus himself to pull this off. And and our passage today puts feet to this idea of I am third, by showing us kind of like what it means to carry that out a little bit in the life of a church. It talks about humility, you know. um, No matter how firm I am in my conviction, I realize that I might be wrong. Even if I don't think I am at this point on this issue, I might be wrong. And I treat others not as idiots. How could anybody possibly? Why can't you just see my words just dripping with disdain toward people who disagree? No, no, no. That's not humility. Humility is like, "Ah, this is where I'm at and this is why. Could be wrong. But I'm not going to look down on others. That also leads to then gentleness. Gentleness gentleness. If you realize the deeper the disagreement, the sharper the argument. The deeper the disagreement, the more heat usually gets exchanged. That's human nature. But this idea of humility leads us to be kind, to be welcoming, to be soft in your demeanor toward other members of your church with whom you disagree on whatever that issue may be. The natural reaction when you see that person and you know you and they are on completely different sides of a particular issue, what's your natural reaction? Just like what happens inside you when you see that person coming across the atrium or getting ready to walk in the door on a Sunday morning? Most of us, there's this kind of internal like, clenching of the gut. There's that walking contradiction to my view. And they're coming right toward me. I suddenly got fascinated with the coffee pot. I'm going to go over here. (laughs) Right? We tense up. We get frustrated. We avoid. We don't look at them. It's human nature. We've all experienced it. Gentleness says you relax. You smile genuinely. You walk toward them. And you can't do that if you're not humble. We need a new heart. Humility, gentleness, and patience. I love that last phrase, bearing with one another in love. Modern translation, man, put up with each other. Which is really hard sometimes, isn't it? Like, just put up with each other. I love the Bible's honesty. This is not easy. <laughs> this is not easy. We've got to put up with one another because sometimes your kid brother drives you bonkers, but you're still family. So you put up with each other. Sometimes your spouse drives you up the wall, but that's your covenant partner, so you stay at it. That's the commitment. Bottom line, guys, in every church you can ever possibly attend, you will find that you are members of that church along with some other people whom you would never choose to hang out with if there weren't God, right? And yet, you're family now, just like the Jews and Gentiles of Ephesians chapter 2. You're now one. But Christ made you family. So, you put up with one another with humility and gentleness. That's the cost we have to pay. It demands we lay down, it demands we put other people ahead of ourselves. But you know what? It's also worth the cost. It's worth the cost because not only does church unity preserve Jesus' work, and not only does it require Jesus' character, it also accomplishes Jesus' mission. I think this is where the light went on for me this past week. A church's unity, the Bible teaches us, helps people find and follow Jesus. I didn't go ahead, did I? There we go. That's where I'm at. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 to 6. Why this exhortation to unity? Because, the Bible says, there is one body, that's the one family, and there is one spirit, the spirit of God. Just as you were called to one hope, the hope of heaven because of Jesus, that belongs to your calling. There is one Lord, Jesus, one faith, trusting in Him alone, one baptism, the only door through which you enter heaven. There is only one God and Father of all who is over all and in all and through all. The reality is that God is unified and the world is not. So when God's people are unified when nobody else in the world is, it points to God's character. That's not what I was thinking earlier this week. But it's true. It's true. A church's unity helps people find and follow Jesus. Jesus himself said this. Helps people find him as their Savior and their Lord. In John chapter 17, the night before he died, Jesus prayed. And Jesus himself, God in human flesh, prayed for you, for me. You know what he prayed for? John chapter 17, verse 20. Jesus, praying to his father, says, I do not ask for these only, his 12 disciples, but also for all those who will believe in me through their word. I'm praying for everybody who will follow me throughout history. And here's what he prayed, that they might all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, that they might be in us, now listen to this, so that the world might believe you sent me. You see, Jesus connects this idea of unity, oneness with him, experienced by his followers. He connects that directly with the idea that the world will see that he is the real deal. That when he showed up and said, I'm the Messiah, I'm God in human flesh, I was sent from heaven to die for your sins and rise again, that people would believe him because they see a miracle and the miracle is people who would otherwise be divided or unified. He connects our unity with our God given mission. A church's unity points to Jesus because God is unified and the world is not. Unity helps people find and follow Jesus, but you know what? Unity also helps us continue to grow deeper in our maturity as followers of Jesus. Back in our passage this morning in Ephesians chapter 4, if you drop down a little bit further to verse 13, it says, that when a church is unified and all the different parts are doing what they're supposed to do, it says that's when we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. How do Christians grow in their spiritual maturity, which is what discipling is all about? When the church is unified, working together to serve one another around God's word. The unity of a church helps people find Jesus. It helps people follow Jesus. Unity is a pretty important deal, isn't it? Not that we all think the same way about everything, but that we lay down our lives for one another, that we put up with one another, and that together we recognize we are an us here to help people find and follow Jesus. How can I serve that purpose in my church? That's the mindset the Bible's talking about. Without it, we will be hamstrung and ineffective in our calling to make disciples. A church that takes Jesus' call to make disciples seriously will take its own unity seriously. So how does that work now, today, in this fragmented, fractured, and divided world? We want to think through some applications of that, and and let me say, before I even dive into that real quick, that the elders have been thinking about that a ton, really for the last year and a half, and definitely for the last month to month and a half. And I know you guys don't see that, so I've just got to tell you that the amount of of time and, and energy and heart that our team of elders has put into discussing and debating and seeking scripture on this issue and praying to say, God, help us lead your church well. I couldn't count, I couldn't quantify the emotional energy or the lost sleep, the number of meetings we've all had, discussing and debating, the emails we've sent around, the conversations we've been having with you, our members, to try to assess and understand, God, how do we be unified now, is absolutely overwhelming. If I were on my own to figure this out, I would implode. I would probably quit, because I couldn't handle it, and I haven't been alone in it. So Mark and Dave and Chad and Brent, and Jim, I can't say enough for how much I appreciate you guys shouldering the burdens of leading a church with me in this moment. And we have looked across our table numerous times and said to one another, where would we be without six other people? The beautiful life partners God has given us to do life with. Our wives have listened to us, have sent us off to extra meetings, have prayed with us, have given us the benefit of their input and their counsel, and helped us make better decisions. So Sharon and Deneen and Margaret and Karen and Kathy and my bride Amy, we'd be lost without you. And church, I just want to say all that so that you know you are served well by your elders and their wives. And my appreciation is hard to quantify. So within that, we have discussed and debated how we handle different regulations. We have watched as this has become the symbol of divisiveness in the pews of America's churches. And we've grieved. We've grieved. I realize that by pulling this out, like for some people the temperature just immediately shot way up. That's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking about. But it's not simple. It's not as easy as some of us would long it to be. How does a church maintain unity when all around our state in particular, churches are dividing and even splitting in some cases and imploding over these kinds of issues? There's also some confusion about what exactly the state has required, which does not help unity at all. And because we've noticed an uptick in the number of conversations around this issue in our own congregation, and, and many of the questions we're hearing and statements that we're hearing could benefit from some more information, we've decided this is a good Sunday to go to Scripture and think about what unity is and how we want to lead our congregation to apply these Scripture principles in this time. And so let me say a couple of things about this. I'm sure that Every uh, question I answer or point I clarify is probably going to generate 12 other questions, and that's fine. We're not trying to solve all the questions because one of the things you'll hear me say is we can't. There is some ambiguity and some gray area here. But we offer this as the product of a group of men who have leaned on their wives and God's word together to say how do we lead this church and stay unified to make disciples. A couple of things. First of all, uh, this is a mask mandate, many of you know about, that the government handed down, whoops, I'm going too far, there we go, right back there, that uh, the state of Oregon handed down back in August, you got to wear masks, everybody knows that, that's about all that the news really reports, there's actually a lot more detail to it that most people aren't aware of, um, And so a lot of times the question was, well, well, are we going to do that or not? Which kind of struck us as weird because we're like, we're elders. We don't set speed limits out on the streets. Like, that's not what we do. That's what the government does. Uh, We don't weigh in on public health crises. Like, that's not our world. That's what the government does. And so we had to realize, okay, so what's going to happen here? So a lot of discussion and a lot of debate. We're a Bible-based church. So the very first thing we did is we went to Scripture and said, how does Scripture lead us to think about this issue. And passages like 1 Peter 2, verses 3 to 15, 13 to 15, weighed heavily in our thinking. I shared this in a video update last August. These verses tell us, "Be again, to a church, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him, to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good, for this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. In context, the heart there, the Bible is saying, like, be known as people who aren't rabble-rousers and fighters. Be known as people who are for your society, right? So it seems like the default, along with Romans 13 and other passages, the default position for a church is if a duly authorized government is requiring it, then it's our duty to follow that rule. That's the default position. That's really shaped our thinking. Now, at the same time, we also recognize that the state's authority, particularly over a church, is not absolute. There are times when a church should rightly say, hey, you're kind of pushing into sort of like who we are and how we function, and there is a legitimate and scriptural separation of church and state, and this whole mask mandate thing kind of falls in that gray area, so it's not like super clear, it's a little weird. How do we think about this? This is complicated. Is this the kind of issue that as a church, we should say we encourage everybody to disregard it? can't tell you how much time and energy we've spent on that question. It is not an easy question to answer. But we realize we need some principles that will guide our thinking apart from our personal feelings. By the way, your elders all have personal feelings about this stuff. And we don't all agree with one another. And God loves the other five guys even though they're wrong, so it's okay. (laughs) Just kidding. Just kidding. Here's the point, though. As elders, we realize it's not about our personal feelings, it's about what does God want us to do. So our principles need to be consistent, and they need to reflect God's heart. So what kind of principles do you use? Here's some of the key ones that are factored into our decision-making. We would consider disregarding a law or an order from the government if it violates Scripture, clear biblical teaching, or the direct implications of clear biblical teaching. If it's a choice between serving God and man, there's no choice. Secondly, if it meaningfully changes what we believe and what we teach and how we do that if it meaningfully alters the content of our liturgy, so to speak, our worship and our belief, then we would say no. If the government came in and said, you may not do the Lord's Supper, uh, you may not sing, you may not preach the Bible, we'd probably say, yeah, sorry, we're going to do that anyway. Because God explicitly tells us to do all of those things. Okay? Is a law or a rule immoral? You know, if we're back in the 50s and the government comes and says, you have to have a separate section in your church for dark-skinned people, yeah, that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. That's just immoral. That's an evil rule. We are not going to follow it. Are churches unfairly singled out? The more that that's true, the more likely we are to say, hey, wait a second here. Um, Hmm, yeah, not sure that, that we're ready to go along with that. And one more, would compliance with this be unrealistic would it be just unreasonably burdensome like there's there's no realistic way we can do what you're telling us we have to do it's just not realistic okay there's probably others but these are the kinds of things that really helped us think through okay regardless of our personal feelings do we want to encourage our church to disregard this order or are we going to shrug and say that's their call i guess that's the rule for all these reasons we've chosen to say that is their call i guess that's the rule If you ask me today whether or not you should drive the speed limit, I'm probably going to say, I guess you should, because that's the law, even though it's not my job to enforce the speed limit. Now, from that, we get into some interesting questions. What has the government actually told us to do? This is where there's a lot more detail than many people are aware of, because it just doesn't get reported. First of all, in this most recent mandate, it was very different than past ones. I don't have the time to go through all the differences. Let me just highlight a couple things. First of all, the actual text of the mandate to organizations with a building, which is businesses and churches and so forth, is post the signs on the doors, because this is a statewide rule, so advertise the rule, and um, have your leaders model it. You know, your staff, people who are volunteering in your building at the time should be doing it. And... This did not get widely reported. I'm sure that was deliberate. But it's explicitly stated that organizations do not have to enforce this rule. So, your local grocery store does not have to tell you to put a mask on right now, according to the state, when you go in the grocery store. Now, they may choose to do it anyway. That's their choice. That's not what they're being told they to have to do. Post the order. This is the rule. We're not enforcing it. Do you find that confusing? I do, too. Don't take it up with me. Take it up with Salem. Okay? This is what they have said. Now, I, but seriously, I, I'm kind of half kidding there, but I'm serious. Like, I get that that creates ambiguity. Man, like, what am I supposed to do? And for some of us, we're really happy with the ambiguity because it gives us, you know, the freedom to kind of have some individual choice. Other people freak out about the ambiguity. You know, if you're a rule follower, you're like, man, just tell me what to do for crying out loud. And because we're an us, can we acknowledge that that ambiguity drives a lot of people crazy? And even if it doesn't drive you crazy, it drives a lot of your brothers and sisters crazy. Can you have grace and compassion with them? Believe me, as a pastor, part of me wants to give you more clarity and less ambiguity. But legalism is always dangerous. I've said so many times, we have a love-hate relationship with legalism, right? Everybody says, I hate legalism. Don't give me a bunch of rules. Don't tell me what I have to do. And then the minute there's ambiguity, we're like, what am I supposed to do? Right? I mean, we we hate rules, and then we love them because they make it clear. And when it's unclear, it's frustrating, and and, and people can bump into each other more, and disunity can result, right? But that's what we've been given. So rather than try to fix the ambiguity that's built into the governor's order, man, that's her thing. That's not ours, okay? We're calling you as a church to what we do have responsibility and authority for. And that is to say, this is God's word, and on the basis of this word, church, let's live it out. So what does that mean? What does that look like? Let me wrap this update up with three specific exhortations that your elders, on the basis of scripture, are urging you to live out. First of all, consider how your actions, attitudes, And words will impact people around you. In other words, be third. Be third. Whatever your opinion about masking and public policy and how many experts there are on epidemiology now, they're like, we've all become experts, right? Okay, just fine. Be third. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 24 says it so clearly, let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. How do my actions and my choices impact those around me? That should be more important to me than the reasons I personally am taking those actions and attitudes. Talk to people. Ask them how your actions and attitudes impact them. Take it into account. Listen. If you're following Christ, you're going to say, "I'm third." Secondly, extend grace. Believe the best, don't judge. Romans 14, 4. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? And in context, that's God. Two members of a church, they don't report to each other, they report to God ultimately, right? So when somebody else is doing what I think they should do or not doing what I think they shouldn't do, I don't think I said that right, but you got me, right? Okay? What's happening in my heart? It's not what is my opinion. At the moment, we don't really care about that. What's happening in my heart toward that person? Is there an unhealthy condemnation, a frustration, an anger, a determination to not be told by anybody? You know, Don't judge. You don't know what's going on in somebody's heart. It's best to believe the best and to recognize we're not all going to get along, and sometimes your little brother drives you crazy. And every now and then you can take him out behind the woodshed and smack him around. But the bottom line is he's your brother. I'm I'm sorry, I'm kidding. But the bottom line is he's your brother. That matters more. Lastly, back to our passage today. Spend yourself on the unity of the church. Not on lesser garbage that just doesn't matter that much. Hear me say it. I'm not saying things don't matter. I'm talking about ultimate. There's only so much of you to go around. How much are you going to spend on things that are less than what Jesus spent himself on? Sometimes I wonder if Christians in Oregon had half the passion about people going to hell as we do about whether or not the governor did the right thing on both sides of that issue. I think the state would be changed. So, brothers and sisters, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace because you know that making disciples is the most important thing. And I'm third. I'm third. Why? Because it's all about helping people find and follow Jesus. And because a church that takes Jesus' command to make disciples seriously will take its own unity seriously. Friends, when you see those signs on the doors, that is not Harvest telling you to put a mask on. That's Harvest telling you that your duly elected government has said put a mask on. And we have decided that that's not worth us fighting in our view. So that's our position. We're going to do it. We're also not going to enforce it. And if that creates tension for you, I'm really sorry. (laughs) But as many things in life as are unclear, God's word for us is clear. I want to end with something else that God gave me that really ministered to my heart. It's actually through a former member of Harvest. There's a spiritual battle going on right now. We've already said that. Satan is seeking and succeeding in sowing disunity among churches in order to obscure Jesus. And it's working. It's working. This past week I received a card, as I said, from somebody who attended here many years ago. And I knew them, but shortly after I came, they'd moved away or something. I can't remember why now, but they were here recently for a memorial service. And she put this card in the mail to me, having no idea how God would use it to minister to me at the time. I just want to read a part of it. She said, I was so encouraged not only from the service, but for how God has sustained the ministry of Harvest as a church. We've been involved in two other churches since leaving Harvest, which was over 10 years ago for this couple. Both churches have gone through two very different but equally devastating transitions, the most recent of which has completely imploded. And you can hear the pain and the anguish. While many churches, she says, are redefining themselves in the midst of culture and pandemic upheaval, some have lost their way and are letting experience dictate their theology rather than the Bible. But may God continue to bless the ministry of harvest and her people through you and Amy. Thank you for sticking to what is good, right, and true to Scripture. That's it. You see? Th- that's it. How our determination flawed and messed up as we are as a church to stick together under scripture, that is the impact it can have on the heart of another person who's like, I'm yearning for that again. I'm seeing the wreckage all around me. I'm experiencing it. And then I come into this church's orbit and I go, wow, what a breath of fresh air. That's it. That's our calling. Because a church that takes Jesus' command to make disciples seriously will take its own unity seriously. I want to ask My fellow elders, come join me on the platform. And we're going to have our elders lead our congregational prayer this morning. And then we're going to sing together as we close. If you've got more questions about what all this means or how it relates to you, man, we're here anytime. We would love to talk. There's lots of confusion. There's lots of gray areas. We'd be glad to talk and to pray. But I want to ask these guys to just pray for us. Who's starting for me? Mark, was it you? These guys are just going to lead us in prayer. So would you join me as we pray? And then we're going to sing.
1: Let's go ahead and bind our thoughts and bind our hearts together as we pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, uh, we come to you right now. We come to you with humility, humbly, uh, praising you and adoring you for the greatness that you are. Uh, Lord, reading in in Job, where you're asking, were you there when I formed all of this, when I made all of this, when I put the earth on a foundation? Uh, Lord God, we recognize the greatness that you are. And, uh, and Lord, we recognize also the greatness that you are as a unified triune God, uh, the Holy Father, uh, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit in the way that that all, that that all works together. And you give us the ability through that for love. And uh, Lord, with all of our weakness, uh, we sing to you our praise uh, together. We love you, Lord.
2: father we confess our need for you we confess that we cannot do the love that you have called us to without your spirit without your work in our hearts without that transformed mind that renewed mind that renewed heart god we confess that all too often we have a disposition of anger frustration of brashness Lord, of anxiety, Um, God, we pray that you change that, that you reveal that to us. Um, We confess that we do not always give the benefit of the doubt, that we look to ourselves first before others and before you, and pray that you would change that in us.
3: in a world around us, characterized by division, by differences of opinion, by anger, by fear. Would you come among us, Father, by your Spirit? Would you give us tender hearts toward one another? Eager to look to the best for our brothers and sisters before our own interests. Would you give us hearts that are unified even as you are one God in three persons and that this will glorify you.
1: Lord Jesus, we just want to pray um, as you did, Matt, talked about in John 17, um, that we would be one, as as Jim just said, as you, Jesus, and the Father and the Holy Spirit are one, that we'd be united uh, in you. And Lord, as a result of that, we pray that um, that would be a a powerful witness in our community, um, that many would come to faith in you, Lord. We, We know that you've promised that you will build your church, and so by faith, Lord, help us to Uh, Be faithful followers, your disciples. Um, We ask, Lord, that you would do that work, that you would bring many in this local area um, to faith in you.
3: Heavenly Father, we praise your name and thank you for sending your son Jesus who sacrificed so much in order to bring us into union with himself. Father, we praise your name for your faithfulness in how you have blessed, provided for, and directed your Harvest Church family. And Father, we praise you for your steadfast love. We love because you first loved us. And this love binds us together and shows the world that we are your disciples. Father, we give you all the praise and glory... And pray now in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Amen. Would you stand with us, church, please, as we, with one voice, sing God's praises to Him. Uh, Let's go ahead and do that right after the service, Rhonda. If you would like to come down and pray with us, we would love it. Thank you for your heart in that. Let's sing right now.